This is Ken Eston. This is Paula Finn. And this is the TV Writer Podcast. My name is Greg Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 99 for May 18th, 2020. Well, today I'm so excited to bring you an interview with veteran comedy writer Ken Eston, who was the showrunner of the Emmy-winning shows Taxi and Cheers, and also Paula Finn, who wrote the book Sitcom Writers Talk Shop, featuring comedy greats like Carl Reiner, Norman Lear, James L. Brooks, Phil Rosenthal, and of course, Ken Eston. A little bit of housekeeping. I've been releasing weekly episodes since the beginning of April. You may have noticed that Script Magazine has been releasing an ep the episodes eight days behind. Well, I'll be adjusting the clock next week. There'll be no new episode the week of Memorial Day. And then I'll be moving to Tuesdays starting June 2nd in perfect sync with, with Script Magazine. And this, incidentally, will be my 100th episode featuring writing team Derek Hughes and Benjamin Robb, who have written and produced for Legacies, the Flash, Arrow, and Warehouse 13. It's going to be a great episode for episode 100. This episode is sponsored by Pilar Alessandra. You may know Pilar Alessandra as the author of The Coffee Break Screenwriter and host of the On the Page podcast. She asked me to offer you 10% off of her interactive online class, Rewrite Techniques, running four Saturdays, May 23rd to June 13th. In the first three classes, Pilar helps you sort through the development and rewrite possibilities of your film or TV script by focusing on one element at a time, a story pass, character pass, dialogue pass, etc. Class four is all about the business, and here, career coach Lee Jessup takes over, talking to you about the current state of the industry and answering your questions about getting representation and finding work as a writer. The class is open to screenwriters and filmmakers at all levels and is taught through Zoom conference in real time. A completed first draft is not required. To get your 10% off, use the coupon code on the page 10 at checkout. If you want to help me to continue to bring these weekly episodes to you, please consider becoming a patron or sponsor for as little as 25 cents per episode. And there are reward levels for different amounts. Visit tvwriterpodcast.com slash support for details. Now on to my interview with Paula Finn and Ken Eston. Enjoy. Well, today I have the pleasure of having two people on the call, and that's because I have Paula Finn, author of the book Sitcom Writers Talk Shop, and I also have one of the people that she interviewed in the book, Ken Eston, who is a veteran writer-producer. Uh, you might know his work from Taxi and Cheers and a whole bunch of other shows. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and I have to say, what an incredible, incredible um, book that you have. Um, oh, Thank and, you, Greg. And I, I wanted to ask you, Paula, it, um, your dad, Herbert Finn, he wrote on The Honeymooners, Flintstones, Gilligan's Island, just some, some really huge names in comedy. Talk a bit about your dad and what it was like to grow up sort of behind the scenes of all of these shows that were going on. Well, my dad was very funny. He was the life of every party. Um, I learned at a very early age, I realized that people were impressed by what my father did for a living. Um, one of the best perks of it was I got invited onto the closed sets of my favorite sitcoms to see them film. So and, and that, that anyone... was before, I mean, a lot of people might not know now that they, there wasn't always a studio audience, right? Exactly. No, there wasn't. No, not for sitcoms. No, it was a very, you had to have an invitation. It was a very exciting thing. You go onto the darkened set, you know, I mean, for a kid, it was a thrill. Put it mm. that way. Yeah. And so were you able to ever visit the writers' rooms? Did you meet a lot of the writers of these shows? Um, at the time, they didn't have writers' rooms for sitcoms. They had them um, for variety shows when he was working in New York. <clears throat> but no, I didn't go to those. But no, the sitcom writers were mainly freelance in their home or their own mm. office or their home. That is so interesting. I mean, it's so different yeah. from the way things are written now. Oh, yeah. Now you have this competitive environment with um, anything can go on, mm -hmm. from what I've heard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, talk about how Sitcom Writers Talk Shop came to be, because you've written many books before this. Um, what, what made you want to write this one, and why now? 
Well, I've had the idea for a while. I, originally, I was going to do a memoir of what it's like growing up with a funny father. And then, so I called some of my dad's colleagues who were still around, and they shared anecdotes of their own careers that were so entertaining that then mm -hmm. I thought maybe branch out and share the perspectives of a variety of writers. Well, and when mm -hmm. you say variety of writers, I mean, we're talking like <coughs> Carl Reiner, Norman Lear, James L. Brooks. Phil Rosenthal. I mean, that's that's a that's a pretty esteemed group. Well, I wanted it to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk about what it was like and to, to it, talk to some of these legends. Um, they were normal people, you know. Um, Norman Lear, I connected through a lifelong mutual friend. <clears throat> um, no, they um, they weren't. You know, they were very humble mm -hmm. and very helpful. Were, um, what would you say were <laughs> things that, uh, was there anything that surprised you in talking with them? <coughs> Sorry. Um, how much stress they go through, the anxiety they go through. Mm -hmm. Norman Lear told me about how he used to literally <clears throat> sit for hours weeping and throwing up before wow. um, a monologue a monologue was due. They have no confidence in their ability to keep finding the funny, so to speak. Um, one of the writers of Seinfeld even told me Larry David says, after they write a script, that's it, we're done. We'll never be able to do this again. <clears throat> so there's so much self-doubt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Bill Rosenthal thinks, uh, you know, this week's script is horrible. You know, that's it. We've lost it. Mm -hmm. So that surprised me. Yeah. The only one who has confidence from day to day was Jim Brooks. He said because he's seen enough of his work work successfully that um, he's not that insecure. In fact, hmm. I have a funny story. Gene Parrott told me um, the writers were in a in a room and it had got they'd worked all night and this was early morning and the cleaning lady came in <clears throat> and she's mopping the floor. And they have one more joke to go, and they, someone pitches it, and they say, put that in. And um, just to be funny, the guy at the typewriter asks the cleaning lady, what do you think of this joke? And he reads it to her, and she says, I think you're reaching a bit. So they oh, left out the joke because the cleaning lady didn't like it. <laughs> so that oh, just wow. shows you how insecure writers are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that makes me think of, Ken, um, some of the stuff you shared in the book about taxi um, and the way you shared it, and, and I, I do want to rewind a little bit before that, but, um, you shared about how you just had to have those jokes and the jokes had to be this big or else it just wasn't mm -hmm. going to cut it. Um, true. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I, back in those days, it still was more important to get the laughs than create a great story. And unfortunately. Today's uh, scripts are more oriented towards the story, which I think is a good move. Uh, so we had to have, we had quotas. Sometimes that say you have to have three jokes per page. And that was very hard for me because I was always more interested in the story than I was in the jokes. I, I liked comedy that had um, uh, story and, and humor, but... It was hard for the jokes. It was the hardest part for me of, of writing was keeping up with the jokes. And that was the only part that made me nervous. I, I wasn't one of these people who threw up or uh, got that upset about it. But uh, I was always insecure about my jokes because sometimes you come up with a really clever joke, but it doesn't get a laugh out loud response. Mm -hmm. And you have a live audience. And if it doesn't get laughs that you hear on, on a large scale, they, they have us all huddle very quickly while we're shooting and trying to come up with other jokes. So the joke was, was supreme, which I think was a mistake back then. I think mm. that some of our, I think Taxi's best episodes were the ones that had strong stories. Mm. And, uh, and the jokes should have always been secondary, but I really felt the jokes were primary. Mm -hmm. and, and Taxi um, was not a show that relied on B and C storylines. Um, it was just one A story. Talk talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, Jim Brooks believed, and I believe he was right about this, that 
in 22 minutes, which is all we really had because commercials took up eight minutes of the half hour, that you, you couldn't really tell a story well. Jim did think about stories um, more than most, but he still was plagued with the n networks demanding so many laughs. But Jim used to say he only wanted to tell one, just an A story, not a B and a C story, because it gave us more time to focus on a significant story, to spend more time on the story. And we always had runners, which were jokes that were extended through scenes. Hmm. Uh, Lockett would be having a problem with getting the back seat out of a car, and he finds some money there, and then everybody scrambles about the money. And it, it never was really a plot or a subplot, but it would run through every scene where we were back in the cab company. So we didn't start every scene right on story or right on the characters involved in the A story. We'd have a little bit of garage activity just to meet, give it a sense of, of reality, a little sense of complexity. But as I said, Jim wanted one story and I once pitched, Barney Miller was doing three stories and I once pitched to Jim when I was running the show, I really want to do three stories because we have th we have a lot of th good ideas that could share the 22 minutes well. And he said, no, if you can't feel the whole 22 minutes with your story, it's not good enough, which wow. I... I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Now, now let's talk a little bit about you had a very, especially compared to today, you had a very unusual path into the industry. Um, talk about your first spec script and, and what happened with it. Well, my first spec script, I sent directly to the producers of the Bob Newhart show because I wrote a Bob Newhart spec script. Well, today you can't get a script past the legal department in, in uh, the, the mail room. It never gets to producers, but in those days, I was able to do that. I sent it directly to Glenn and Les Charles, mm -hmm. who were the showrunners of of Taxi at that time, and they read it, and they liked it. Uh, they liked it so much that they kept it for two years without ever calling me. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And um, two years later, when they were actually finishing up the first season of Taxi, they called me and said, or actually their secretary called my mother because I wasn't living at the same address that I had on the script because two years had passed. Yeah. And they, they found my mother in the phone book and called her and said, do you know Ken Esten? She says, yeah, it's my son. And, and uh, well, we are interested in the script he wrote. Would you uh, see if he's still interested in writing? Two oh. years later. So she, wow. she couldn't phone me because I was working on a site where I was doing um, I was working on, on a remodeling of a house where I was putting up the drywall, which is a terrible job, mm. but I was doing that. And, um, she showed up in her car and she, she was a, kind of excited and said, do you know some, a show named called taxi? And I said, I've heard of it, but I really haven't seen episodes. She said, well, they want to meet with you. So that's really, I mean, today that that just can't happen. You can't send a script to producers and then have them. Yeah call you it's just not possible yeah. it's a shame because i think i think part of the art of writing should require the large producers to still read scripts although they worry about plagiarism suits and also time consumed in the reading of scripts that are useless mm -hmm. but they never lose a plagiarism suit because they've got a team of lawyers. And if you're an individual and you sue them, you've you got to pay for your own lawyer. It just doesn't work out. Hmm. So there's really no no good excuse except that it costs them some money yeah. to, to, to not read scripts that are unsolicited. I think I wish somebody would start a movement to, to force producers to start reading unsolicited scripts again like they did hmm. for me. I, I don't know how I would have gotten into business had – Jim had um, Glennalus Charles not gotten that script. Mm. I wouldn't have known how to get an agent, yeah. and, I, and no agent would have read me it even then. So yeah. it's amazing. Well, it did it did happen well into the '90s. The the Star Trek franchise was well known for for taking freelance scripts from from mm. anywhere. They would accept submissions from anywhere, but um, certainly they were unique in that. Um, but yeah, so Glenn and Les Charles they had your script. Two years later, they called your mom and and uh and you eventually found out about it um yeah so, <laughs> so you you wrote what two three freelance scripts that first year 
Yeah, for them. For what happened is Glenless called me in and, and and they asked me to pitch an episode of Taxi and and I caught up on Taxi. I, I watched some episodes and so I I knew what they were talking about. Um, and uh, I pitched an idea for them, and they liked it. And they gave me a script assignment, and I wrote the outline. And they hated it. They hated <laughs> the outline. They almost terminated me. They said. Yeah, they said, uh, your outline is not what we talked about in the room. And I said, well, yeah, I thought you were giving me suggestions, but I'm the writer. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> They were the showrunner producers, and they said, no, 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 you don't understand. Our suggestions are not suggestions. They're, uh, they're demands or requirements. What? Yeah, so... Um, so I, they said, do you want to... Uh, you think you could do it our way? And I said, of course I can. They said, well, then go away and write it, rewrite the outline and come back. So they could have just terminated me then. Mm -hmm. I give them credit for saying uh, they think I just misunderstood how the system worked. Yeah. So I came back with the changes that reflected their original pitch, which wasn't that different than mine. There were a couple of things. One, uh, it was the the guest star was a little boy in their pitch, and in my version, it was a little girl. Um, I think it worked better for a little girl, given that it was about a, a boxing match for which the the comeback fighter was fighting because she needed surgery. And I thought it was kind of fun that she was a little girl whose hero was a was a boxer rather than a boy whose hero was a boxer. And and they said no. So I changed it back to a boy. It seems like a very small change to want to fire me over. And I changed it to a boy, and I changed the dialogue to fit a boy. And then when they actually shot the episode, I discovered why. Tony Danza's son wanted to play the part, and oh, they, yeah. wanted him, they wanted him to play the part, but they didn't want to tell me that. So when they actually shot the episode, Tony Danza's son played the boy. Wow. That's the only reason they wanted a boy instead of a girl. I think it would have been a equally there were arguments for either way. But anyhow, I, I just was lucky that Glenn and Les were open enough to give me a second chance. Wrote an outline. They liked the outline a lot. Then I wrote the script and they loved the script and gave me two more scripts to write. Then I wrote those two scripts and by the end of the third script, they offered me a job on the show, which is really fast. You know, that, that, that's a fast process to get to be a staff writer on the best show it was a it was the best comedy on television it won the it already won an emmy one year and won for four consecutive years wow and uh it was the best comedy on the air at the time and i didn't know all that i was i was on i was an outsider putting up drywall mm -hmm. um, but i quickly learned and i learned i was in the best place possible as a comedy writer and really learned my trade from Glenn L.S. Charles because mm. I I had no schooling in um, television writing. I, I majored in English in college, and I had written short stories and um, nothing longer than short stories, actually. But short stories are a lot like television hours and half hours. You know, they're, they're very short. You have to tell your story very quickly and very precisely because you have so little time. But... Uh, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know formatting. I didn't know how many jokes per page. I didn't know uh, where the commercial breaks were. Uh, I didn't understand what, a, what at the end of the scene you had to have a big joke, which we used to call blackouts, which now they call buttons. Mm -hmm. um, so Glenn and Les really taught me, taught me the trade. And they were very patient because they liked me. You must have learned fast because you got on staff the next year and then Two years later, you were running the show. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, yeah. about that. Well, again, I, I won the lottery uh, because I got there. Glenn and Les went on to do Cheers, and they needed somebody to take over Taxi. At the time, I was the best taxi writer. I wrote more episodes than anybody by my, by my third year. I was writing more episodes, and they were all doing very well. And I got a Writers Guild. Well, I got a Writers Guild nomination every season that I was writing on the show. And uh, when Glenn Les said we're leaving to do Cheers, they asked me to go with them. And at the same time, all that was a lot of good, uh, you know, when, when somebody wants you, somebody else wants you more, you know how mm -hmm. that works. Yeah. So uh, uh, Jim Brooks and, and 
um, Ed Weinberger were primarily the, the runners of, of uh, or the, they would oversee taxi, though they weren't there for day-to-day operation. They thought I was too quiet and too reserved. And I told you I preferred story over jokes, and they mm. weren't fond of that either. So they really weren't anxious to hire me. But when Glenn Les wanted me to do Cheers as the producer, you know, showrunner, and they would oversee that. Mm-hmm. And um, they just they said, okay, we'll give you we have a chance to run this show if you want it. And I had to choose between going to Cheers or staying with Taxi. At the wow. time, Taxi had a history of yeah. three years of being winning the best comedy on television, and Glenn and Les were doing something that could be a failure or a huge success. As it turned out, it was a phenomenal success, and I wish I'd gone there, but. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you can take that out of the interview. No, no I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was phenomenal that I had that I had that choice between either Cheers or Taxi. Wow. And in retrospect, Taxi would have ran many more years and, and actually got more awards and such. And it would have been a better choice for me uh, career-wise. But I don't regret staying with Taxi because I, I loved the. Uh, I love the concept, and I loved uh, the cast and, mm-hmm. and the director, and um, we just had a really good team. It was kind of like a surrogate family ourselves. The the taxi characters were like a surrogate family, and the writing staff was like a surrogate family. So mm-hmm. it was a very happy environment. We used to have a party after every show at the at the end of of an episode that we shot when the audience finally left, and we got all our pickup shots done. Would go upstairs to uh, a meeting room, and it'd be all laid out for a party that the actors had paid for, mm. and would have would have drinks, you know, a beer and 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 hard drinks as well, and and uh, uh, no drugs, really, no drugs, yeah. but a lot of drinking, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and food. They they catered it, and, and we'd have music and every single show. Wow. And when I finally left there to go to eventually taxi folded because Jim Brooks was too busy doing movies. And I went to cheers after all to, to run cheers. I took that job later on. Hmm. It was never the same. They didn't wow. party. They didn't enjoy each other. Like we did. They were all wonderful at their jobs, but nobody felt like a family. So I, yeah. I never had that again, ever. In all the years that I ran at the shows, because I was very young on taxi, I was only 25 when I was running. No, I mean, when I got on the show, and I was running it before I was 30. And in my entire career, I never had that experience again. Hmm. So that was the most fun. And I was the youngest, and it was the most fun of my career. Wow. And talk about some of the careers that were made on taxi. Well, Tony Danza went on to do Who's a Boss and made a fortune doing that. And that was a show I thought would last two episodes. <laughs> and, and instead, it ran for as long as he wanted. I think yeah. he finally quit the show. Um, Danny DeVito started his own companies, and he produced some wonderful movies, and he still does. And uh, it pretty much does he, what he wants to do. Um, Judd Hirsch went back to Broadway it's interesting about Brett Judd Hirsch. He didn't want to do TV, and he only oh, did yeah. it because because Jim Brooks was in charge of the project. And if you notice on Taxi's credit, it says Judd Hirsch in Taxi. I've never yeah. seen it in any other show where the actor's name comes before the uh, the title of the show. Yeah, because that was that's how badly they wanted Judd to play the part. And a lot of people don't understand how essential that that centering character is. He doesn't get the most laughs, but he grounds your show and he, and he sets it all up. And he, he is funny. I mean, Judder's funny and, and a wonderful actor. And, but he was the center of our show. He was kind of the touchstone for all the characters and yeah. uh, absolutely essential to the success of the show. But I read reviews all the time that mention um, Chris Lloyd for, for uh, Reverend Jim and Danny DeVito, mostly for uh, Louie and skip over Judd Hirsch, who the show couldn't possibly have succeeded without. So, mm. uh, yeah, they all went. And Mary Lou did a talk show and something else, and she's written some books now. And um, everybody really did things. Christopher Lloyd did really big movies. He did Back to the Future and, um, and several Carol, others. Carol Kane. I mean, that Carol Kane. Oh yeah, yeah. 
she she's she did wonderful stuff too. Um, Carol Kane's a wonderful actress, and and um, who else? Uh, you know, uh, well, Jeff Conaway passed away, so. Hmm. Um, but everybody in the cast did things, and all the directors went on to do wonderful other shows, and uh, all our major writers on our staff all went on to do other things. So it was just a wonderful place. It was just. It was winning the lottery. I was a young man, and I thought, wow, showbiz is, is fun and easy. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I completely had the wrong impression. I, it's never been fun and easy since. It's been, I love writing, but the job's never been fun and easy again. Never. Well, we're going to take a break to hear from sponsors, and then when we come back, we're going to talk more about comedy writing. DrivingFootage.com provides 4K nine-angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig is available for custom shoots and second-unit photography. Visit DrivingFootage.com for details. AVGearGuy.com provides computer and gear rentals serving the LA area, including laptops with final draft, as low as $9 a day with long booking rates available. They also scan photos, documents, video and audio tapes, and film reels to digital so you can easily share with your friends and family. Mention the name of the TV Writer Podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Visit AVGearGuy.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. And we're back. And uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, and this is opening up the floor to Paula as well, um, to talk about the things that, uh, that Ken, you learned through that time and, and, and as well about comedy writing, but also, Paula, what you've heard from the, the other writers that you interviewed. Um, first of all, how do you come up with ideas for episodes? Where does that come from? Um, the majority of writers say it comes from real life. Carl Reiner is known for asking his writers um, what's going on in your house or in your life. Uh, tell us and we'll make it funny. <laughs> so you start with the truth first. Um, <clears throat> Phil Rosenthal, the same thing. One of his writers said on Raymond, the writer's wives figured out that um, sometimes the writers would base an episode on the arguments they'd had at home. And mm -hmm. he would get this look in his eye and the wife would say, this is not for the show in the middle of a fight. And then he'd tell her how much money he makes per episode and she'd say, okay, this is for the show. And, said, and then sometimes they would artificially extend the argument just for a second act. Uh -huh. But um, Norman Lear would tell his writers to scrape the barrel of their existence, which meant... Uh -huh. Of their experience or existence. Hmm. Um, it meant what's going on in your relationships, pay attention to what's going on because we can turn those into great stories. Hmm. And Ken, what about your that, I agree with that. That, that that's, that's pretty much, Jim Brooks used to do the same thing. He would want to know what you're doing, what's going on in your life, and Glenn Les would do that. And, and also... I also pick up things from the news and from television and stuff. I, I rarely, I mean, I, I don't get my ideas by just trying to think of some piece of fiction. I usually do get my ideas from reality. Hmm. And then you try and make them more entertaining than, than the, necessarily the news or the event in your life. But they come from that. She's right. That's, that's, how I, that's all I've always worked, too. Mm -hmm. And what about jokes? Is it any, any different with jokes do you follow any rules or, or, or things that you've learned in terms of the mechanics of the joke, or is it, is it just looking for the funny? Well, there are tons of books out that will teach you formulas and stuff and how to do it, but the great writers, uh, Carl Reiner says, if you're a real writer, you go by the seat of your pants. You don't worry mm -hmm. about the technique of it. And Ken agrees with that. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Yeah, you have to feel it. It... it, it Though I don't, I do know the rules because I, I mentioned earlier I teach now. I teach at a university, and they ask me, "Well, how? Why does this joke work?" It's easier, like a critic uh, reviewing a movie. It's easier to look at a joke and then tell them why that joke works than to 
think of the rule and then try and fit a joke into it, you know? Hmm. So uh, I don't use the rules when I write, but I know the rules. So I can, I can tell you after the fact why a joke, probably why the joke worked. But even then, most of it is, is just uh, from your gut, from your soul, from your heart. It just, I don't know exactly where it comes from. And if you don't have a sense of humor going in, you're just not going to be able to write it. But the good thing about today is a lot of the shows don't that are comedies don't have a lot of those hard jokes anymore. And so p- some people who aren't as funny as um, we were then, uh, who were primarily comedy writers or, or stand-up comics who were doing this, now you can do humor again, which is what they used to what Mark Twain used to do. I never laughed out loud when I read anything of Mark Twain's, but I always appreciated his humor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting more and more like that. There, there's, there are many shows on there now that don't make you laugh, but make you feel good. And mm-hmm. those are usually, those are, those are comedies. Yeah. And, uh, and what would you say is the best part about writing comedy? Well, Seinfeld writer, Larry Charles says it's when it works, when you're in front of a live audience and it, and you kill, mm-hmm. there's nothing like it. Yeah, I, uh, that feels wonderful when when you make people laugh. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's what I miss. More, more, more. Actually, most shows now are shot single camera without an audience, so they they don't get that appreciation that we used to get on our uh, multiple camera live audience shows where we heard people really laughing. Mm. That is that that makes you feel really, uh, really, uh, really terrific. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you feel, yeah, it's very satisfying, very uplifting. Yeah. And what would you say is the hardest part about writing for a comedy? Well, Jim Brooks said it's the finale. If you have a show that's done well, the expectations are so high for the finale to be as good. And Phil Rosenthal said the pilot is the hardest episode because you're creating Mm -hmm. a world where none existed. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ken, I think for you, it's the jokes. It's always been the jokes. The jokes are the hardest part of writing for half-hour comedy. And you had mentioned sometimes you'll you'll stay till all hours of the night just for that one joke to end it. Yeah. Did Jim talk about that at all, Paula? No. Um, no, he didn't. Yeah, sometimes we'd be there for hours. I mean, literally hours because we can't get that final joke to close the act the main act break at, at the at the commercial in the middle where you need a big joke because you want the audience to come back or the final joke that ends the show. Those are critical jokes. And sometimes we, we spend hours passing on some really good jokes because they just didn't make people laugh out loud in the room. And so we knew they wouldn't make audiences laugh hard enough. Mm. And that is the killer. Mm. It also isn't good for storytelling. It's not good for storytelling when when you spend so much effort on on jokes, when you have a story to tell, so anyhow, that's my philosophy. Yeah, it uh, it makes sense what uh, Paula you shared about um, about how uh, self deprecating these writers are. <laughs> so much time uh, not having success and coming up with that joke. Oh, yeah. And you said you used to steal sometimes when you got really desperate. You'd steal one from another place in the script. Oh, yeah. We would sometimes, if the joke wasn't big enough at the end, that we wanted to go home, we'd start looking through the script for a joke that was really big, that wasn't at the end of an act, uh-huh. and we'd find a way to reconstruct the story <laughs> so we could move that joke to the end or to the end of the act or the end of the show. And, yeah, we'd literally steal a joke from ourselves to to uh, and just fill in you can fill in a lesser joke where you took it the place you took it from was not as important so you put in a lesser joke there and use the big one so mm. yeah we did all kinds of crazy things and we'd be there till we'd start at ten in the morning which seems kind of late I guess for some people but we'd stay till to two or three the in the following morning and go home and only sleep seven hours six seven eight hours and come back to work because of those damn jokes that kept us there at three in the morning yeah 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 well in uh you you had said that you you wanted to do some more subtle jokes um 
and, but later on you got the chance to work on single camera comedies. Um, what would you say the difference is, um, and, and how did you find it when you, when you were able to do those sort of more sub, subtle humor and uh, not necessarily go for those giant jokes all the time? Um, I felt that it actually made better episodes. I look back at old taxi episodes, and if you don't pay attention to the laugh and just look at the story, it feels very thin. And um, I felt that I learned bad habits here because when I got out of, when I left those shows and I started writing screenplays, they were just too jokey. And, and, and I'd get notes saying, oh, this feels like a sitcom. And it felt like a sitcom because it had too many jokes in it, which is, mm. seems like that would be uh, a good thing anyhow. But usually it shows that in movies that have a lot of jokes tend to be wild and, and almost on the side of silliness. And the rom-coms and such like that weren't that funny. They were less funny. So I couldn't fit into the movie business because I learned these bad habits of three jokes per page. Mm. And if I didn't have those three jokes per page, I, I felt I, I didn't have the confidence in the in the page and the scene. So, uh, I, so I said it, the business has changed in, in comedies. There are comedies like Atlanta, which doesn't go for laughs and has really important stories to tell mm -hmm. and, and does get laughs during the process. So uh, I would rather write for those. Mm. Um, I, as I said, I'll never regret the days on Taxi or Cheers because – uh, they're they're both classic shows, and, and Taxi was so much fun and easy, and Cheers was easy because everybody knew their job so well. The, the experience of Taxi and Cheers was never um, duplicated again in my career. Either Taxi was fun and easy, and Cheers was easy, and the rest were just really hard work. And some of them turned out really well, like the Tracy Ullman show did did well while it was on the air, um, but nothing nothing felt like the early days. So. It's kind of like I had my, you know, I ate the dessert first, and then I had to deal with dinner, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, talk about creating the the Tracy Ullman show, because um, that was that was one you created. Yeah. Well, we created that, I created that along with Jim Brooks and Heidi Perlman and Jerry Belson. And we didn't know how to write variety shows, but we loved Tracy's talent. She could sing and dance, and she was funny, and she could act. And Jim Brooks wanted to figure a, a, a sitcom that would allow her to do all that. So maybe she could be somebody who's in show business. But we, none of us felt we wanted to do a series about a woman who's in show business. And even the networks weren't looking for something like that. So we decided to do a variety show. And we didn't know how. So what we did is we would do little vignettes that were really tiny sitcoms, tiny, tiny sitcoms. And they were self-contained. But people would get confused that we're looking at our dailies and saying they couldn't tell when one scene was part of one vignette and then another vignette started. So we needed something to break it up, mm -hmm. something to go in between to tell you that that one episode or one series of scenes that was an episode was over. And this is the weird story is that that's where I read a, a little a cartoon strip by Matt Groening called Life in Hell. And I, I said, you, maybe it'd be funny if this guy came in and, and did his little characters in between our if animation that didn't look like anything we were doing. That would tell everybody that that previous scene was over. Here's a little breaker. And now we're, we start another vignette. Turns out his little vignette, his little breakers became, you know, made dwarfed everything we did on the Tracy Allman show because mm -hmm. The Simpsons has run now for 30 years. Wow. But they were the Simpsons. What happened is he, that the Fox wanted to buy the rights to Life in Hell when we when it was our idea to put it in our show, and he didn't want to sell it because he was selling the the comics strip to newspapers, but not big newspapers, the throwaway free newspapers, and he was selling T-shirts and things with the characters on them, and he made a living, a meager living, doing that. And he he didn't want to risk losing it by giving away his rights to those characters. So he walked, he walked <laughs> off the project. And, and I said to, um, to Richard Sakai, who was running Jim's company, I that what happened to that? What happened to Matt, that bad guy? I, I really like his cartoons. And we had another woman doing cartoons also when they would share it split off, off one week, alternating was the plan. And they said, he told me about the, they couldn't get a merchandising deal. So 
I said, well, he's a, he's a cartoonist. He must be able to do other characters. Can he give us some other characters that he wouldn't mind giving up the, the merchandising rights or sharing the rights? And then he came into Jim Brooks' office with the Simpsons drawn. And he, and he said, here's the characters. I call them the Simpsons. They're based on my family. And uh, the rest is, you know, is history. But wow. um, the Simpsons just took off like I've never seen anything like it. He went from a struggling poor man, just barely getting by, to he lived in Venice, Venice Beach, you know, in California, and in a really crummy little rundown place. But the show took off and earned him money so quickly that he bought the house he was in, then he bought the house next door, and he started the money was kind of keep rolling in and rolling in. So then he made the house next door just a game house of all the merchandising things, the pinball machines, and the toothbrushes, and the all the stuff that yeah. they were doing, everything with with the images on them, and then that got so crazy that he then he got a chauffeur and he would be a chauffeur to to the studio, and then. Next thing we know, he moved to a mansion somewhere, and I, I never saw him again. <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> I left the show, and uh, he, they continued on. Jim Brooks and, and Sam Simon and, and Matt Groening, and uh, for thirty years, it's just amazing. He yeah. has to be worth a billion dollars, that guy. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's interesting. That's how. So the the Tracy Ullman show was really the launching pad for the longest running sitcom in the history of television. Wow, wow. Yeah. So, so um, moving on. Um, this is this is for both. Um, so both for Ken and also what everybody else has shared. Um, how does everybody that's come up from that generation feel about today's comedy? Maybe start with Ken. How how do you feel about the, the state of where comedy's at right now? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, that I think that it's better than ever. I think that the new comedies um, contain more story. There's much more story content. And the jokes more are more uh, out of attitude and, and, and really situations, not the situation. So they're no longer even a situation comedy. They're about people who we make a little cleverer and funnier than reality, but um, but basically, it's it's. I think it's better. Mm-hmm. And and Paula, what did some of the the people you interview uh, that you interviewed share um, about that? Some of the old timers <clears throat> didn't like today's comedy at all. Mm-hmm. They didn't think it was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would. They did acknowledge that on cable there were some good things. And Norman Lear loves South Park. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Paul Reiner thinks the best show ever was All in the Family and not because of his association with it. Um, yeah, but a lot of them really put down current sitcoms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're, they're just, there will be, there will never be another All in the Family. No. It just, it's not the time for it. Um, no. So, so this one's to Paula. Um, what was your favorite? Part about writing the book slash what were the highlights some of the highlights of writing your book um well the interviews actually for me the creative challenge was i ended up with 1300 pages of single space type transcripts wow because wow. i interviewed over 50 writers they didn't all make it into the book um so it was a challenge to decide what goes in and how to present it and that kind of thing um one of the highlights for me was, well, talking to Arnie Hogan, because he's very funny. I don't know if you know him. But um, Leonard Stern yeah. shared a story with me. Yeah. Um, when he was doing I'm Dickens, He's Fenster, working with Mel Token, and they were so used to writing for a boss and saying, you know, the boss won't like this. Um, and then they realized um, they won't like this, they kept saying. And then suddenly Mel Token said, Leonard, they is us, meaning they were on their own. They were the head of it. They had no one to report to. So they saw, and then they were ineffective. They couldn't write at all. So they came up with a solution that Carl Reiner had his office next to theirs. And they decided they would write against Carl. So they're saying, you know, Carl wouldn't like that joke. Carl would make us take that out. He would hate this. And Mel built up such a resentment towards Carl Reiner. 
that um, one day there's a knock on the door and Carl says, hi guys, want to go to lunch? And Mel says, fuck you. <laughs> um, that's it. Well, um, they explained to him and to this day, Carl remembers that. Oh, but wow. um, just shows you how a writer's mind works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, writers are strange people, uh, especially comedy writers are strange people. Uh, yeah. Even I haven't met anybody in the business who wasn't, who was a writer of comedy. No normal people, mm-hmm. including me. <laughs> and, uh, and how's the response to the book been? Very positive. Thank you. I've been asked by a lot of screenwriting blogs to write guest posts. And I taught, Ken knows this, I taught a seminar, CBS Studios for um, script writing organization. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I got several celebrity endorsements, Jay Leno and Paul, Paula Poundstone, yeah. Richard Lewis. Mm-hmm. And Carol, actress Carol Kane wrote the foreword. Yeah. And, and, and I wrote one yeah. too. And I have to say, really, that I learned from that book. I, I've been around a long time writing half-hour comedies, but actually hearing what these people who were long, around, who, who established the business that I end up inheriting and now that I'm passing on, hearing what they went through and seeing that it was so much like what I was still going through that I, it kind of made me understand more about the the longevity of the of the half hour comedy form, and even though I always had a problem with too many jokes and and the really older ones think there aren't enough jokes, um, primarily the way we felt the feeling that the comedy coming from some place inside and flying by the seat of your pants and the nervousness and there's the, just so many things that I read in her book that I said, yeah, so. That's always been around. It's just not. It's not a neurotic uh, change that's come with the with the new forms. So I, I found it very helpful to read that book. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and and just a lot of fun. Yeah, and fun, and I loved what some of these guys said. I mean, they're all funny people, and um, yeah, I, I loved reading the book. Yeah, very Thanks. cool. Well, in uh, in just to sort of wrap things up here. Um, what what would your advice be to somebody who is starting out now in the world of comedy? Um, you've had decades of experience now. Um, what what would your advice to say the younger version of yourself coming in? Um, pick a different profession. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. I I would tell them if they love it then they have to do it. But honestly, if they don't love it, it's a really hard way to make a living because I, for example, worked a, a lot. Just be Part of it I said because of the lottery. I started the best place in TV. Mm-hmm. So obviously, and I became the showrunner within a couple of years. I was only, I was less than 30 when I'm running the top show on television, comedy. So my career really just took off and I made a lot of money and I did really well. But when I hit 55, nobody wanted to even meet with me anymore. They just, you know, around 55, it started slowing down before that. But around 55, with no change in in my writing as I could see it, they just felt they wanted younger people. So mm-hmm. what I'd say is if you're willing to, to go into business where if a show gets canceled, you may not get another show unless you're on a run like I was, which was, I said, a lottery win, uh, you may not work in between shows, in between series. And then you're at 55, you're kind of washed up. So it's, it's a hard way to make a living. Hmm. And now it's harder because in my day, you could send things to, to agents and to producers and to people inside the wall of, you know, the business on the other side of the wall, we were on the outside. And now you can't get through that wall. You have to find an agent, but the agents don't even want to read your scripts. They, you have to have a recommendation from somebody in the business to get the agent to read it. So it's just really, really difficult. As difficult as it was, it's harder now than ever. And I do tell people, if you love it, do it. If you don't love it, really look for uh, a 
another way to make yourself happy. Mm -hmm. Also, there's so many more film schools and graduates in the field now. True. So the competition is much stiffer. There's more competition, and in some ways for fewer jobs. The movie business is shrinking, although the TV business is growing to make up for that. Um, and they don't pay the way they used to. I used to get paid a ton of money in those early days, and now they still make lots of money. I don't mean to, to, to minimize what they make, but mm. uh, in those days they used to give us development deals and pay us a million dollars just to sit in an office in case we came up with an idea. <laughs> they don't do that anymore. So, uh, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's changed. But I think the writing's better. I think the stories are better. I think the series are better. But it's a much harder road than it was for me. And it was, and it was uh, since it was so easy for me because of the fortuitous events. But I know other people who wanted to get in who couldn't make that first crack in the wall that they could get through. And, once you get on the inside, it's much easier. But even then, if your show gets canceled and then you don't work for, say, three years and you're looking for work, suddenly the agents and the producers start saying, well, what did you do recently? Mm. And you say, well, I haven't worked in three years. And they go, oh, you know, like, oh, that's what, that's that's really bad. Well, no, it's, you know, it's hard to find work. Well, yeah, okay. And then you're, that interview is over. So mm. it's hard. Would you say it's, it's very still hard. Would you say it's still a good idea for somebody who wants to write in comedy to um, to do stand-up? Yes. Doing stand-up is a, is a good way to um, to get that feedback on your jokes, to know what jokes are working and which ones aren't, to get your sense of humor uh, in a groove that works for you. Yeah, I recommend doing stand-up. And that you can do. You can go to any club on their open mic night and go up there, and if you have – five great minutes they'll invite you back and maybe you can get up to 15 minutes and eventually you get to work weekends and sometimes people see you in those clubs and maybe i say the way to get into the business now is to know somebody or to know somebody who knows somebody and that can happen in a club because somebody really likes your act thinks you're very funny they just they probably will read your script or get your script to somebody who will read it so that's a good avenue for for getting inside that that wall very cool well i think that's a great place to end up um you guys have been very very generous with your time and uh, and i would definitely say to anybody who loves these old shows or anybody who loves hearing the behind the scenes of these comedies definitely buy paula's book sitcom writers talk shop um so uh thanks to both of you and uh um have a great night Thank you. Well, that's the end of the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do check back June 2nd for my 100th episode, an interview with writing team Derek Hughes and Benjamin Rabb. You're going to love that interview. Make sure to subscribe on all of the places you can find this podcast, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and also make sure to rate the podcast and, and submit your comments. Please do follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle, and also visit tvwriterpodcast.com slash support for details on how you can become a patron of this podcast for as little as 25 cents per episode. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.